Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandor of The Eye, and I Think You're Interesting. One of my favorite new shows of the year has been Who Lose the Handmaid's Tale. And when I say that, there's kind of this opinion that people have formed about the show, which is that it's A, too depressing, and B, like liking it is an act of, I guess you want to, I'd want to say resisting the Donald Trump administration. And I can see that. Like I can see why this, this show feels timely. I can see why it feels like it taps into that sort of low grade fear that a lot of the women in my life have had since the 2016 presidential election. But I think that The Handmaid's Tale is is so much more than sort of the accident of the moment it was born into, because the book has been around since 1985. It's always been timely. It, it seems to get a little more timely with every year, yes, which is probably a concern. Like, we should probably talk about that. But we have always lived in this system where women have not had equal rights and equal opportunity. And so naturally, the, the showrunner of the TV series uh, is, is a guy, uh, as you'd expect. And uh, what, I, what I love about what he's brought to the show is that he's been so open to working with other people to like incorporate their idea of what the vision is into making that, making the show feature all of those different styles and formats and, and tastes. And I'm just fascinated endlessly by the series and by his work. So we're going to talk to Bruce Miller, the showrunner of The Handmaid's Tale, about creating the show and, and making it what it's been, especially in this tumultuous period in time. Just as a warning, we recorded this episode in Bruce's office, so you may hear some traffic noise, you may hear some other random noise. We filtered out as much of it as we can, and here's a spoiler for you. There's a dog in those offices. They have a dog there. So now when you think about watching The Handmaid's Tale, you can imagine a a dog helping out. Bruce, good to have you. It's very nice to be here. This is my new podcast, Two Men Discuss the Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) Um, I'm sure you've heard that joke a million times before. But uh, I love The Handmaid's Tale season one. I'm really glad to have you here. Um, But I do like, just give me a sense of like how you got involved in this project. Because um, uh, looking at like your IMDb page, which is full of some of my favorite shows, but not a lot of shows that would suggest, well, there aren't a lot of shows in TV history that would suggest, Hey, let's go show run the handmaid's tale. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't, when we were looking for writers, uh, people were saying, well, you know, I don't know if their resume or their credits match up to the project. And I said, I don't know anybody's resume <laughs> who matches up to this, but if you can find me someone, that would be lovely. But, yeah. um, uh, um, with everything else with this project, we had a lot of trouble finding creative analogs, things that we were, aspiring to even tonally you know it's it's weird because it's uh really hard to watch very straightforwardly awful but also funny and also very character based and and also shot in a way that's not you know it's very realistic and grounded yet quite beautiful and so when you start kind of going down that rabbit hole of like let's find something that looks just like and feels just like this you end up you know with zero hits on imdb for <laughs> Forever and ever. Yeah. Uh, so we had to kind of find one, you know, one visual style here, one kind of editing style here, and pull them together. And 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 it wasn't a function of trying to be brilliantly inventive. Mm-hmm. It was just a function of you kind of, uh, which goes back to your original question. You know, I read this book when I was in college, so you have a lot of time to think about it as you absorb other kinds of, you know, media through your life. I always loved the book. 
And I loved the world, and it kind of started me reading a lot of dystopian fiction. Um, I'm not I'm not a huge reader in terms of volume. I'm quite dyslexic, mm-hmm. um, so I read very slowly. But what it does is, in a strange way, I reread the same books a lot. Right. And so I reread The Handmaid's Tale over the years. And, you know, you read The Handmaid's Tale and then you get to see Rosemary's Baby and you say, hmm, that's interesting, you know, visually, tonally. And then you read The Handmaid's Tale and then you watch, you know, uh, you know, a David Mamet play. And you're like, huh, I wonder how, the, you know, those, it's so much more talking than goes on. But my involvement with the project was mostly as a spectator for so long. I read the book. I heard there was a movie coming out. I was excited about the movie. It seemed like a very visual story. And then the movie didn't really hit me. Um, um, I'm fascinated always by the movie because all the people and the actors are so excellent. Yeah. And it's written by, you know, Harold Pinter, who is an accomplished fellow. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, I saw the movie and then I heard they were making a TV show about it. And I heard Eileen Chaikin was involved. And I was thrilled. I mean, as a fan, you're just like, well, Eileen Chaikin's a very good writer, and then this sounds awesome. I'll just wait until it happens. And, you know, the time went by, and it happened. It didn't happen, and it didn't happen. It didn't happen, which is not unusual at all in our business. Um, and, and, you know, and, and I, even in my head, thought, well, this is going to be tough stuff. It's tough stuff to read. It's going to yeah. be tough stuff to see. And I did a pilot a few years ago for HBO about Salem, about the Salem witch trials. Sure. And when I was doing it, there's so much in Handmaid's Tale that's kind of parallels that Puritan uh, form of government that really, you know, uh, started in the United States. You know, we have a vision of ourselves as being very uh, tolerant of other religions. And and in fact, we started exactly the opposite. You know, this is, you know, it was a totalitarian <laughs> religious theocracy at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, I had revisited the book, and but every time I came up for air or I had some time, I had my agents check on this project. And it was mostly out of curiosity just to think, ooh, you know, when is, when is it coming down the pike, you know? Yeah. And it turned out uh, that um, Eileen had moved on to Empire, mm-hmm. slumming with, with her, <laughs> her brilliant show. With the biggest show on TV. With the biggest yeah. show on TV. And, and, you know, she was doing quite well for herself. And the project had moved to Hulu, which was interesting to me. Um, it's always interesting when a project ends up somewhere that wasn't even in existence when the project began. Yeah. And uh, they it was through MGM, and, and, and I had very close relationships with uh, Steve Stark and Lindsay Sloan over there that I had built up over years. I had worked with them before. People in Hollywood get a bad reputation, but almost the, the number of people who I've worked with one to ten times in Hollywood who I consider some of the most upstanding, you know, just business partners, creative right. business partners, uh, that list is quite long, and they were on it. So I heard they were looking for a new showrunner, someone to kind of look at the pilot and see what adaptions had to be made, and then to run the show for the first 10 episodes to write to write the show. But they were looking for a woman. Yeah. Um, and I was on their side. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was a good idea. I thought it was, you know, you know kind of essential. Um, and if I didn't want the job so much, I would have been thumbs up. Great. You know, yeah. uh, here are some suggestions. And so I waited patiently. And then I just went in and when they finally uh, said, okay, we'll meet with you. I went in and I just ran them through what I was thinking mm-hmm. about what things would make it good. What, what right. How could I bring the book to life? And that was always my attitude. I mean, I loved the book. Sometimes most of the time you adapt a book and the book is lousy. 
Right. Um, and you're taking some concept from the book. Here, the book is brilliant. And so you really want to figure out a way to capture not just the story or the characters, but the tone and the feel and the pace and all those things you kind of don't think about. And in some ways, I think it's what made the show a lot better was is not because me or people involved in the production kind of came up with these wonderful uh, ways of going into flashback or or you know her her voiceover and the kind of spunkiness in June's voiceover, but the fact that Margaret did those things and we were smart enough to try to emulate those in a, in a television setting. Right. So I think that you know from the beginning we stuck to every everything in the book. Um, if we change anything, we do it very mindfully. You know, yeah. because we, and it's not out of like fealty or we're just like kind of bowing down to Margaret Atwood, although lots of reasons to do that. Um, we, we did it just because it works. It's a really good story, really well put together. And when we found ways to take what's in the book and really thought through, why did Margaret do this? Why are there flashbacks? Why are there voiceovers? And with the answers to those questions comes, okay, how can we do that too? In not exactly the same way, but in film, yeah. or in TV. So the first season was really well received just in general but if there's one point in the press cycle where there was that that like hint of alarm it was when the show was first announced and it was they said that you were going to be show running it and people were like there's a man show running handmaid's tale and then margaret atwood said oh no i've read his stuff he's great and everybody's like okay we'll wait and see because margaret atwood said okay but like how did you you said you you yourself hoped they would they would have a woman uh, run the show how did you sort of mitigate that that like there are certain things that you and I as men can't know about what the show's talking about that that's exactly what you just said is exactly the place I started which was um don't and and it's kind of the place you start on every show mm-hmm. the shows that I've been on my resume those shows I kind of is eclectic but 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 most of it is grounded and also kind of character centered Mm-hmm. Mostly female character centered, but um, so I was used to the idea of buttressing my own weaknesses. You know, when you're on ER, I'm not going to get a medical degree. I'm going to hire a doctor, right? And when when I was on Medium, you know, we had lots of people come in who had either dealt with uh, people who were psychics or people who had you know debunked psychics or people who supported psychics or people who were psychics. So you always want to buttress whatever area. You um, are weak in, you know, medium is a really good example that that uh, there were lots of people on staff, but some of them didn't have a family and child. And that was such a central, central piece of that show. You mm-hmm. wouldn't think of it, but I did. And so I was kind of buttressing that weakness in other people. They would write, you know, we would sit down and they would say, well, what the hell happens in the morning when you're trying to get out the door with three kids? Yeah. And luckily I had three kids and that morning I tried to get out the door with them. Um, and that's what made the show grounded. So I think that I tried to recognize that there are just don't be, you know, fuzzy about it. Just yeah. say, okay, there's lots of shit that I don't know because I'm a man. Hire smart, stubborn, outspoken, thoughtful, creative women who are also very, very good writers who you know will be comfortable enough to be honest with you um, because you're going to have discussions about things that by definition aren't shared really between women and men. Otherwise I would already know them. Yeah. You know, someone would have told me, um, you know, and you end up having conversations that you didn't think you were going to have that you get down into the specifics of what it feels like to get your period. 
mm. you know, in really specific terms. The the funny part is that you think, oh, okay, well, I'll get a group of women and therefore I'll get the answer. And in fact, you get a group of women who argue with each other about the answer, <laughs> just like if you got a group of men, you know, there yeah. is no answer, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, is a little more encouraging. And also, strangely, a lot of things that women have not discussed with each other either. Right. Because it just doesn't come up. You don't talk that often about the other day we had a six-hour conversation about blowjobs and mm. and about the emotional and kind of sexual and, and kind of dominant, submissive feelings of, of that. And it was fascinating. They were all like – they had clearly never discussed that with each other. And they're mm. all – and everybody had a different idea. As I said, you know, the, the, the press reaction at the beginning – or as you said, the press reaction at the beginning was – had doubts about me. Mm-hmm. I had the same doubts. I was completely with them. You know, I didn't want some body coming along, man or woman, and screwing up my favorite book. Yeah. Um, and I think that because it was a book, I had a leg up. I had a character to go on that was mm-hmm. built. Um, and just in the last few weeks, I've been thinking how uh, magically helpful that's been. Just that uh, there's something about the fact that uh, June in the book is is written so fully that you really get a sense of a person. Yeah. Um, and not like, not a particularly simple person. You know, she does some good things, some bad things, uh, some smart things, some stupid things, some, but she's very much like us. And I think that that really was the, the most invaluable part of the preparation process, even, even more so uh, than hiring the right writers, which is always absolutely essential in TV, but getting me in a mindset to, oh, okay, this is the story. This is the voice of the story. This is the point of view of the story. And specificity helps. It's not about women. It's about this woman. Yeah, yeah. So I just tried to buttress my my weaknesses thoughtfully. Tell me about finding the look of this show, because it's so distinctive. And you mentioned earlier that you were, like, really trying to figure out what it was going to look like as you were, even before, in some ways subconsciously, before you were working on the show. You were trying to figure out how it would look. But like uh, Reed Morano and and Crabtree and some of the other like really great uh, visual people who came in and helped build the look of it. Like, what were your conversations with them, and how did you find this place? Well, initially, uh, I think the, the the first step was that it was making the decision that I was going to need to tell the story visually mm-hmm. uh, because Alfred does not say very much. She's always communicating some sort of difference between what she's saying and what she's feeling. And also the fact that Gilead, the look of another world, the feel of Gilead being in another being in another place was super important. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel transported. You wouldn't feel like offered. And it had to feel real and grounded because otherwise it isn't scary. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a simple fact, at least for me. If I feel like, oh, that would never happen, yeah. um, it's a lot less scary. So the, the um, interesting thing was that I didn't realize I had such a particular vision of the optical style, the visual style of the show until I started to kind of talk to people about it and go, well, that's not what I'm thinking. You know, it was kind of in contrast to things. Right. Uh, So initially I was casting about a little for a, 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 you know, a visual style that I felt was grounded, that made it feel like the real world. Right. Um, And, there were weren't very many movies. I couldn't find very many analogs. Um, but when I saw Reed's film, Meadowland, it was exactly the kind of look that I wanted, the kind of intimate look that I wanted. So 
we started to to talk and 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 uh, you know it was a long process getting her uh, signed on to the project just because she had never done a pilot and she didn't have that much experience in TV. She had a fantastic ex- amount of experience as a director of photography and mm-hmm. film, but um, and so uh, as we talked and as she she kind of translated what I was thinking story wise and environment wise into this is what lens you use to get that. Yeah. Um, you know, because I certainly don't try to take do those jobs for my people. You know, I say, I want it to look or feel like this. And she mm-hmm. says, oh, okay, this is how you do it. So we were, you know, I say intimate, and she, like, turned that into a visual style that's astonishing. Uh, and then as we pulled into the other people in the process, I think the key was two things. The key was keep my mandate simple. Right. And that mandate was make sure it feels real, mm-hmm. and it should be beautiful. Right, it should be beautiful and 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 iconic mm-hmm. in in um, especially in Gilead. It, it's a lot. The show's a lot ookier if Gilead's beautiful. Yeah, um, we've seen so many. You know, most dystopias are rather you know dusty and full of robots and rubble and that kind of thing. Um, this is a beautiful dystopia, which is one of the things that makes it novel. So the beauty is a storytelling piece. Yeah. So. Uh, I tried to stay very simple. Um, you know, what would really happen? What would it really look like? Let's make sure the people look like they're wearing clothes, not costumes. All those very simple grounded things. And then the other big piece was hiring people and empowering them to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, to telling, saying to Ann Crabtree, I'm not going to tell you to what clothes to put people in. Here's the story I want to tell. I want, you know, this is how I want them to look. This is, and we talked about who made the dresses for the handmaids. Uh, how many dresses do they have? Do they yeah. have one? How many pairs of shoes do they have? Because shoes wear very differently if you wear them every day or if you have a couple of pairs you switch between. Um, would the shoes have laces? And no, they didn't have laces. So we wanted to think through all those practical details about what would really happen. Uh, and then I really left the aesthetics to them. Right. Um, because they're better at it than I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Colin uh, Watkinson, who's the director of photography, uh, and Reed Morano, and uh, Ann Crabtree, Julie Berghoff, who was our production designer, right. and uh, you know a lot of other members of the uh, crew, uh, the discussions they had were very granular down, you know, about colors and about shades and about what kind of green, what kind of red, and how things were going to play off against each other. And we did a lot of camera tests. And I think the philosophy of the show developed during that process. And the philosophy was, let's just make sure we do everything on purpose. Right. You know, and if we're going to make a mistake, let's make a huge mistake on purpose. Let's decide this is what we're going to do. If we're going to blow it, you know, we should blow it, you know, in the right direction. Yeah. So, and I think that that, it was remarkable to watch. I mean, it was remarkable to watch those people with those brains and that amount of understanding of color theory, but in different environments. One person is talking about the paint on the wall. One person's talking about clothes, and the mm-hmm. other person's talking about recording that on on a digital medium that's relatively new. Yeah. But but she's a DP who's an expert in it. She was not raised really on film. She was raised on shooting digital. It, it was it was like watching you know it, it was like watching an argument going on in the head mm-hmm. of you know Picasso yeah <laughs> and they, but it was spectacular and and I think that um, the color palette uh, was the first thing that really brought the show to life I know that sounds strange 
but you never know what is going to be the first thing that brings the show to life. Right. And then you're you're stuck on hilarious problems like trying to pick a red. <laughs> I've never been through more kinds of red. But then, you know, you're spread all over the country and reds look different on every computer. And we ended up sending Lizzie, you know, a, a two foot by two foot piece of fabric yeah. so that she could hold it in her hand in her apartment in New York and look at it in the sun because there's no other way to tell <laughs> what the red is. Yeah. So I think that... Um, you really want to empower everybody on the show as a storyteller mm-hmm. uh, and tell them, okay, you know, you tell your costumer, okay, if there's not going to be any dialogue yeah. and we're only going to show people in costume, I want people to know what the story is. Right. And and you tell every single person that and then everybody adds a little layer to the story and then you end up having to have less, less talking. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about world building in some ways. And what I know from people who have shows where there's a lot of world building or write books where there's a lot of world building is that they always have like, like what we see is the tip of the iceberg. Like they have so much more figured out below. Like if you talk to like the people from Westworld, they won't tell you what they have figured out, but like they definitely have this like whole society set aside. Like how much do you know about Gilead and about this world, even beyond the book, but like in your show version that like you're going to mine later or is just not on screen, but you feel like, you need to know it. A lot. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike Westworld and unlike a lot of other shows, the, Gilead, the, the the world is not a mystery. Right. Some of it's hidden from from June, from, yeah. from Offred, because her perspective is so limited. But it's not like they're keeping it secret. And revealing things about the world are generally not going to be big surprises or, or story points for the audience. The world that the story existed in generally is not the world. And so we're, we're in a little bit of a better position because of that. The, the world building, you're absolutely right. It is the tip of the iceberg. But over time, uh, you know, in, in, in the past, I would build a whole world in my head and then kind of tip the iceberg. And, and on this show, generally what I do is I have the great benefit of having Margaret's book. We've had a lot of discussion, extrapolated a lot. Um, but what I remember and from years of doing this in television is that you have to have an iceberg that's flexible. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm trying to do is the pieces that end up on television, I just want to make sure that they line up and they're logical in the bigger picture. But I also don't want to figure out every detail of the world before I get to it. Because by the time I get to it, I might have come up with something more interesting. I might... You know, the, the it's easy to kind of do a black and white version in your head of Gilead bad and, and handmaids and victims good. And, and that's just not the sh- way the show or the world lays out. And so the more you find out about the commander and Serena Joy and what their relationship is like and how they were instrumental in building this place, that tells you what the place is going to be on a more emotional granular level. So I think that, uh, yes, absolutely, you want to have uh, a big world filled out and the broad strokes of that world filled out. Uh, but you do want to allow yourself flexibility and you want to ba- allow yourself to dive into a pool that you're not sure how deep it is uh, because that makes it a more human experience. I mean, I think that, you know, we could sit down today and we could look at all the pieces of paper that make up the U.S. government. And I don't think that would describe how it feels to live under the U.S. government. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So I've recently been using the new bourbon-inspired collection that The Art of Shaving has introduced in celebration of the anticipated new film Kingsman The Golden Circle, which comes out September 22nd. And let me tell you, using bourbon-scented shaving cream and aftershave lotion, I smell like a sitcom dad, or at least like what I assume a sitcom dad would smell like. It's really it's really taken my life to a new level. So this Art of Shaving collection was thoughtfully created to celebrate the best of the modern gentleman, inspired by the new Kingsman movie. It's combining a rich woodsy base with a hint of vanilla, the bourbon amber scent evokes both heritage and tradition. With its blend of botanical ingredients and essential oils, the pre-shave formula is perfectly suited for men with tough beards. Formulated with skin conditioners and essential oils, the shaving cream helps hydrate and soften your beard hair for a close and comfortable shave. It's also blended with essential oils and moisturizers. This light and quick absorbing aftershave balm hydrates and refreshes skin after shaving, leaving it feeling smooth. So you can get those Kingsman collection items and smell like a sitcom dad yourself. They're all available at the the Art of Shaving retail locations, but also online at theartofshaving.com. See the new movie in theaters September 22nd, and our listeners will receive 15% off of their first order and free shipping by using the promo code TODD, T-O-D-D. To get this offer, go online to theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code TODD, T-O-D-D, to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer, and be sure to catch Kingsman, The Golden Circle, in theaters September 22nd. So you've you've talked about the book a lot of times and how it's a touchstone in many ways. What's interesting to me about adapting any book for television is it has to just be a starting point. You can't like, like Margaret's book is great. um, And that's one advantage you have. But another advantage you have is it's very open-ended. Like there are a lot of things suggested in the book itself. And then the book's ending is, you know, one of the famous, I don't want to call it a cliffhanger, but you know what I mean in like literary fiction. Like what? Incredibly frustrating. Yes. <laughs> what uh, What was sort of your approach to figuring out how to make that book? Because you basically have done the plot of the book in season one. Like there's some stuff in there, but like, what was your approach to breaking that book into episodes and and bringing it to TV? I think I I, I attacked it in a very prosaic way, <laughs> um, because um, I feel like a, the pieces of really good television that I've watched that have been really well-made television by real pros that didn't land for me and didn't succeed for me were, were all things where, where they weren't entertaining mm-hmm. and there wasn't kind of that very basic friends model of this is the one about this yeah. in episodes that serialized television has gotten so serialized that sometimes the episodes are just, sometimes they feel like on certain shows that it's just the episode that, connects the story in episode, in, in episode seven to episode nine. Mm-hmm. That's what episode eight is. And I don't like that. I prefer, so it's pedestrian and, and it's more of a kind of a ham-handed way. But I want my, my ep- the show to be entertaining and I want the episodes to have central stories that really show a, a pivot point, a change in state for your characters. Right. So when we look through the book, I was looking for those bigger moments that really changed Alfred's life. You know, the and so some of them were mentioned in a sentence or even hinted at in a sentence, like the visiting, you know, Mexican ambassador um, was kind of a, 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 a different version of visiting guests that happens in the book. And then there were other things like the birth um, of uh, baby Angela, 
uh, when Janine gives birth at the Putnam House in the second episode, which is pretty well described in the book, beat by beat, and we stuck with that. Um, so I think that w- the way I broke it up into episodes was I, I, and I moved around things and mixed things up. The book isn't linear anyway, but I moved things around just to kind of uh, try to give stuff as most the most impact as possible for the for the audience. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that each one was a discrete episode, a real story. I, I mean, this is the one where, oh, my God, did you see the one where this happened? And I think it allows me to feel more comfortable with the more literary aspects of it and the, and the strange pacing that I try to do and right. structure and, and character stuff. And, you know, all the other stuff that I, that I do hangs better on a very strong superstructure. So if you look at the episodes, they're – Episodes of Mannix, you know, yeah. this is the one about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you're talking about um, the process of building uh, this character in this world, and so much of that is finding the right actor. And uh, Elizabeth Moss has been very involved, not just in playing the character, but also the production of the show. What has that like that relationship? I, you'd never met her before, like you didn't know her. Like, what has that relationship been like? Uh, to build and like, because it, it has to be very close and very collaborative, I imagine, just from the way both of you work, but then also from having to create this show. Elizabeth Lizzie mm. is, is what we call her. Lizzie and I had never worked together before. Um, she had worked closely with um, my friend uh, Matt Weiner. And mm. so on Mad Men uh, for such a long time. And, and, and uh, so just over the years, I, I had, he, he, he just adored her and is so, so respectful of her has so much respect for her that I, you know, we had spoken over the years about how amazing she was. And when he was initially casting it, we, you know, I had loved her on West Wing. And so we had had lots of discussions and I had been a big, not just a fan, but a watcher of her work Mm -hmm. over the years. But we had never met and we had never certainly had a conversation about uh, work to the depth that we were starting to. Most of all, I think I got incredibly lucky. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Lizzie is extremely talented actress she's very professional she uh has much more experience than almost any other actor i can name her age um she in the hiatuses 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 from all the shows that she's been on she she does so many parts in so many movies and you see her popping up everywhere she's worked with a million directors she she loves to work and she's worked with a lot of different people i also have been in tv for a while Mm -hmm. And I think that from the beginning, we both approached this as the material and the scripts come first, but they're not the end of the conversation. You know, uh, when you work on a movie with someone, you're kind of going on a date. Yeah. But this is getting married. Mm-hmm. You know, in success, you have to think about, well, in success, we're going to be together for a long time. And so we both approached it that way from the very first conversation. Like, okay, we are actually feeling each other out for a longer-term relationship. We are going to find out whether we can work together and taking that as seriously as anything else and not not judging. You know, I don't think Lizzie was judging me as a human being. She's judging me as a colleague, as mm-hmm. a work colleague. And so uh, – and I knew that that from the beginning that she was interested in producing uh, on this project. And sometimes that's a vanity title for actors. Um, I 
assumed that Lizzie didn't want it to be a vanity title. And I had no interest in having, you know, if, if I have someone who's got a title and they're willing to help me, I'm very happy to, <laughs> to take the help. Um, so uh, she wanted to be very involved. So we had lots of conversations from the beginning. And I think that with every conversation, we were uh, happier with the fact that we had found each other and that we thought about things the same way in it, not, not necessarily in the script, but in the process of talking about the script that she was very open. She asked me tons and tons of questions. I gave her tons and tons of answers. I, every scene, I have 650 reasons why I did each thing. I'm very <laughs> anal about that. She loved that. Um, but I think what we did was we didn't expect you know, love at first sight. We we worked together the whole year. And in fact, we're having dinner tonight and she's in Los Angeles and it's the first time we've ever had dinner alone, just the two <laughs> of us. I mean, we've worked together for so long and we've been so busy, but, you know, we don't, you know, we've been very close, very collaborative colleagues. And I think, uh, you know, and I have, you know, I really, really think she's spectacular, but also she's been a great friend and supporter and all those kind of things. In addition, though, I think uh, she's able to bring a certain element that is not usually available to producers, which is the the understanding of how the cast works, mm -hmm. understanding how actors act. So her role of being kind of leader of uh, a, a cast uh, has has been a producerial role that I don't usually get on another show. So just, you know, on, on a lot of shows, the only thing you find out about the casts are, you know, gossiping when people are unhappy and stuff. But she really knows the organism of a of a cast and what keeps it going and what keeps it happy, healthy, getting enough sleep, all those kind of things, and, and creatively engaged. And so I think that she brought to the table this it's, – it's not just a perspective, but it, it's a level of professional experience with lots and lots and lots of different actors so that she could help be the producer in charge of that group. Uh, and that, uh, it's almost unfathomable to try to do a show without that now when you think of, oh, my gosh, all the things that she was able to keep an eye and take care of. And that's in addition to being very involved in, in the other, you know, the other decisions, the six million decisions we make a day about, you know, what music we're going to put in this scene and who's going to wear the red bow in the eye yeah. and how does, you know, how, you know, what do we do in the scene where we cut off Warren's stump um, and cut off Warren's hand. And so I think that, she has uh, a great respect for what I do as a showrunner, uh, and she doesn't think she could just snap her fingers and be a, a producer. She has a lot to learn, just like I have a ton to learn about what she does all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that mutual both respect for what we do and eagerness to learn and curiosity has really helped us. On a very basic level, I, I adore her as a person, and also I, uh, she is so good in this role and it, like it's preternatural to watch her do it preternatural oh, yeah. to yeah. watch her do it in front of you mm. um and that is the combination of the fact that when she finishes doing it she's like happy and smiling <laughs> and you know and engaging and the fact that when she she does it you get to see something you know it's a master class i mean it really is something to behold i mean we had cameramen who were fighting over the opportunity to operate the camera when it was going to be up in Lizzie's face because to see that performance that close was something that they'd never experienced yeah. before. So mm -hmm. um, I feel really, you know, I just, I, I feel very lucky and I know that's a lot of it is 
luck mm. when you find someone who you not just can work with and not just does great work, but who I, you know, who's just a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take you saying that you have a lot to learn about what she does as a, as an indication that you're taking acting classes and you're going to become an actor now. Like that's your next step. Um, I think the world would, would be better, much better served uh, by me becoming a huge actor than me being a writer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, so you, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and um, you had mentioned that you, when you started out your career, there was like no feedback, and now there's all this feedback, and certainly the feedback to Hemi's Tale has been largely positive, which I'm sure helps in the process of reading it. But what have you like? What have you taken from that? Like, what's something that you were relieved that people got, and what's something that you feel like you could have done a better job that people maybe missed? I think uh, the first thing I would say is something that 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 I missed rather than something that they missed, which was just um, uh, the role of race in Gilead. There have been very active discussions online about the Gilead in the book doesn't have any people of color at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a very big decision to put people of color into the TV show. Um, And the discussion about the experience of people of color in Gilead and how that might be and how that's being portrayed or ignored or embraced or what have you online, that has been fascinating and so respectful. Not 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 just respectful of the show, but the conversation, respectful of each other, people mm-hmm. on different sides of the conversations for the most part, um, that I've learned a ton about that and learned a ton about how people see themselves represented on television and what parts of the characters they connect to. Mm-hmm. You know, some people connect to sexual orientation. Some people connect to what their accent is or, you know, how tall they are or short they are or pretty mm-hmm. they are or fat they are, whatever. Um, and so uh, that discussion about race and how people find identity and connect to those experiences has been fascinating. From the very, very beginning, I was happy that people – People were getting everything. Everything I thought that I threw in that was too subtle, people were getting. Yeah. Um, that they were watching very carefully. And I've always felt that audiences watch incredibly carefully. They, you know, they, 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 they're, they're smart. They know what's going on. My daughter walks into a room. She's 12. She watches for two minutes and goes, that guy did it. <laughs> um, because so with, with that in mind, uh, you know, I, I tried to make a show where you wouldn't be able to do that, but that doesn't work if people aren't paying a lot of attention, and they were. And uh, the other things that I th- was thrilled with were um, the fact that everybody was getting angry at themselves for having sympathy for Lydia and Serena Joy and all these people who, you know, on some sort of list would be considered villains. I don't consider them villains, but uh, that people were having sympathy for them and hating themselves for it. Mm-hmm. That was a thrilling that's exactly what I wanted to happen, but who knows if that was going to get through. So that I was thrilled that people got out of the show. And in terms of things that people were missing, it was much more I felt like people made connections that I didn't that I didn't intend and that weren't there. Um, uh, and you wonder, it throws me into a position of saying, okay, should I follow that up and make that the truth? Or yeah. should I go- keep going the way that I'm going? Did I actually misstep a little and and I actually made it true. Mm. Um and so there were a lot of there were a lot of things like that. But the the level of of in a good way, you know, ambivalence, people who are both 
furious and sympathetic towards even the commander. Yeah. Uh, that stuff was just awesome to see. And I think for the actors, they loved it. I mean, they, they, you know, it's so hard to play a character like Serena Joy and like the commander because it's so easy to fall into mustache twirliness and we, we work so hard to make them human beings. And when they look online and people are just, you know, furious at themselves for having a moment of sympathy for the commander. It's just, it's, you know, for Joseph Fiennes, it's like, you know, he feels like he's done it. He's put the key in the lock and it's, uh, you know, it's very inspiring to go, wow, you know, that's not easy. That's a tough line to tread. And I actually did it. And they're, they're mad at themselves yeah. for, for caring about me. The moments in the first season where the commander is like, he thinks he's being benevolent, um, you know, to either Serena Joy or to to June, um, are just some of my favorites. I love his performance in those moments because he's so uh, oblivious, and I love the way he plays that. It's so great. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and it's kind of a. Uh, it, it, and Joe and I had long talks about that because Joe isn't oblivious at all mm. as a human being, as a man, as a family guy. You know, um, you know he's got you know a terrific wife and two little girls, and he's just you know as evolved and woke as as anybody. And then he's got to kind of play this guy who's who's um, stumbling so much without any recognition of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, the, the more benevolent he's trying, seems like he's trying to be the grosser it gets, yeah. uh, w- which is so wonderful because what it means for Joe is that he doesn't, he, he doesn't have any ill motives. And there's a moment in one of the first scenes when she's invited to his office to play Scrabble. So she has no idea why she's been invited there. And, Everything he says in his mind is a very casual conversation and in her mind could end up with her leg being chopped off. Yeah. You know, he says, um, this is going to sound strange, but I wanted to play a game with you. Mm. And she looks at him and there's just, you can hear her going, is this the, <laughs> is this the remove my fingers game yeah. or is what game, you know, and, and he's talking about Scrabble. And when she sees it at Scrabble, she's even like, Really? Scrabble? <laughs> and in the book, she describes it. She just says, one of the weirdest things that's ever happened to me just happened to me. I mean, that's what she says about the scene. And you totally get that. And then at, when he invites her in at the very beginning, he says, it's one of my favorite line reading. He goes, this must seem very strange for you. Yeah. Mm. And there's a long pause. And there was voiceover in the script as her mind was going. But, but you know, with Lizzie, you, we've excised so much voiceover because you don't need it. But she just leans back in her chair and the whole audience. And for me, I'm just turning over the idea that what is he? Some kind of idiot, of course. And she says, it's a little strange. Mm. And it's such a great, like understated line, but it shows you how careful she has to be. So uh, it, it's wonderful that, that he, um, that he's uh, oblivious to the terror that he strikes in her um, and she is trying so hard to navigate. And the great thing is it's two people sitting across a desk from each other, but the stakes are so high. I mean, yeah. she makes a mistake. She's dead yeah. in a horrible way. Mm. Uh, so I think in some ways that's what makes those scenes possible is that you just take a scene that if it was on a speed date, it would be nothing. And you lay this world and this relationship underneath it. And then you have exactly the same scene. You get Lizzie and Joe and Joe's playing the date version. Yeah, and Lizzie's playing the "I'm on a date with Ted Bundy" version. Yeah, um, and 
it just makes the scene super interesting because there all those people are in the same scene, including us, and we all are looking at it very, very differently. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that the audience drew some connections you didn't necessarily intend. Do you have an example of one that you can tell without like spoiling where the show is going? Um, I'm trying to think of one. Um, uh, there was there was discussion about um, the, the character of of Off Glenn, who was played by Alexis Bledel. Mm-hmm. The amazing performance by Alexis Patel, just off the charts. Um, yeah. When she, she, at one point, she jumps in a car and starts driving around and and um, uh, drives over a guy. There was so much discussion about what that meant and and was she committing murder? And if she was committing murder, why didn't she she kill more people? And there was real kind of discussion about the fact that she, you know, was she, did she intend to kill the guy? And she, and for me, that was so much more of an Im- impulsive moment than a thoughtful moment. And people ascribed a lot of thought to that moment. Um, I got the sense that, that, that uh, just like all of these women, they're always on a, all the women who are handmaids, they're being treated so cruelly and being restricted so much that they're always on a hair trigger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the great, uh, I think uh, the thing I one of the things I like the best about the the show is that it makes men the men in charge in Gilead look like such idiots because they they gave these put these women in their house and they treat them like they're complete morons and they're not morons mm-hmm. and they're in their house it's like it's like putting a tiger in your house I mean mm-hmm. why in the so that their misogyny and their disrespect is going to come bite them in the ass and eventually they're going to drive over their head mm-hmm. and so my feeling about that moment was very different I think than the online they were there was a lot of discussion about is it a moment of rebellion is it a moment of and my feeling was that it's like ooh mm-hmm. I have a chance I have a chance to to um be free for a minute. And, and in that 25 seconds that she's behind the wheel, she's free in a lot of different ways. And one of those ways is I'm free, I'm, I'm free to express my really revulsion and anger at, at my hatred at all these men who are imprisoning me. Um, but, but the fact that it was like a premeditated, um, th- there's a, there's, I think a t- residual TV idea of what a resistance would be like, in a place like Gilead, and we've tried very hard and done a lot of research with, um, you know, economists, and and also uh, we had very great input from uh, people in the intelligence community about what a res- what a, a real resistance looks like. Right. Um, and uh, so we were trying to build a, a real resistance and make it very practical. Um, and this didn't really have that much to do with it, but it was read in that way. Uh, but you know. God bless. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a really interesting moment, and um, you know, I, I've seen that moment more than anybody else because I sit in editing and I could watch it over and over again. Just Alexis's performance and her face when she smiles and communication between the the women and their reaction when she drives over the guy's head is yeah. is you know fifty percent gross and fifty percent excitement, and it's just a well a very well directed scene by by Mike Barker in a really well-written piece. I think one of the things that fascinates me about this show is that, <coughs> is that you've solved kind of the issue of so many TV shows, people are like, well, nobody dies. Why does nobody die? But on this show, like when people don't die, that's like worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm like, I'm fascinated by that because there's all these characters in the first season who, you know, you think, oh, they're, they're going to take uh, Emily and she's going to be executed for, you know, what she's done. But like, no, that's not going to happen. She's fertile. Like they, they need yeah. her. It, tell me about sort of like building that horror in and like make, because that, that's one of the things that really landed for me in season one. Uh, I feel the same way that, that, that you know, um, it is, uh, it's kind of a different kind of disrespect, a different kind of uh, dehumanizing to, to make them valuable for their bodies mm-hmm. so that you just don't want to get rid of their bodies, but you can do any kind of damage to their soul or their brain that you want to. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, it could not be any... Um, better drawn than, you know, cutting off someone's clitoris to, you know, what they did to Offland, you know, which is this just, you know, horrible physical and emotional violation, psychological violation. Um, but then they expect her just to go back to work because she's just a body who's supposed to be producing children. So I, one of the things I loved about uh, the novel when I started to think about it as a TV show was the fact that there are always stakes. Mm-hmm. Always. You mm-hmm. fart in the wrong room, they could kill you. Who knows? Um, and so I think that that the uh, as you said, you know, you make the world so difficult and so torturous that suicide or death seems to be a way out. But the system is also trying very, very hard to keep you from doing that. So uh, someone in the writers' room once said, "It's a place that you know kills your soul but won't kill you," mm-hmm. and uh, and both those things are equally horrible. Um, and so uh, although, you know, no one ever dies and I, you know, I'm, I'm always back and forth on that because I, I like when things feel realistic. But on the other hand, you know, you, you pick the stories and the characters you're going to follow and, and you build those carefully and you want to make sure that, that in some ways you're saying, you know, 100 years from now, these are the people that somehow made a difference. So they survived long enough to have meaning in this world. Uh, but I, uh, I think that you know the con- when you, when you can construct a world where, as you said, there are lots of good and lots of terrible outcomes from each story. You then, you know, as a savvy audience viewer, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, a, you know, uh, I just I like the fact that our stories come hopefully to a satisfying ending, but it's not the ending you necessarily would have uh, even expected. The ending it wouldn't it is not even one of the choices on your possible ending list. So you know how hard it can be to find the right person for a job. Even if you're somebody who's looking for a job, you know how many other candidates are out there. You know how easy it is for that needle to get lost in that haystack. And if you're somebody who's hiring, forget about it. You have to go out there and comb through those resumes, look for just the right person, and, you know, take a big chance. But ZipRecruiter is different. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job. It's better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. There's no juggling emails. There's no calls to your office. You simply screen, you rate, you manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash think. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash think. 
tell me how you decide which flashbacks to delve into, like what parts of the history of of Gilead to tell. Are there parts of this story that you feel are like off the table? Like, for instance, I would love to see previous Offred, but like maybe that's something that you prefer to leave as a mystery. So, like, do you have those sorts of things in your head that are like, this is a place we don't want to go, and like this is the stuff we do want to tell. I really, I, no, I don't have any strict list. I, I, I try to let my curiosity mm-hmm. uh, guide me. Um, and I would be fascinated to know about old Offred as well. Uh, and also what um, our Offred, June, was like in her previous posting when she was, you know, of whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've got a season and another season and another season and another season. Hopefully we can delve into a lot of this. That's great. So two things really guide me. One is just plain, straight, what am I interested in? And I try not to think about it much beyond me mm-hmm. um, because I'm a huge fan of the book. I'm fascinated by the world. And so I'm going to follow what I would really like to know about, things I'd really like to know about. The other thing is um, primarily the show is June's point of view. Yeah. Um, so uh, to go into a flashback that June... Uh, was not involved with, doesn't know anything, and also doesn't have any way of ever knowing in the future, I I am nervous about. Most of the flashbacks, when they aren't June's flashbacks, are I try to make it something that she eventually, at some point in the future, might have heard that story, and she's... So it's something that is knowledge that she has access to right or something that she could logically extrapolate um the commander and serena joy in their relationship probably if you think of a future for offred where she eventually gets out of gilead and gilead eventually falls and there's eventually you know kind of the nuremberg trials and she gets to re- to be part of that and read the hundred thousand pages of of documents that they have on the commander and serena joy she'd be able to extrapolate some of those moments yeah uh so that you know, bends itself into my idea of point of view. But uh, there is nothing that's off the the table. I, in fact, you know, we we always, we came to the end of the first season and already in the second season, we have way many more flashback stories, things about Lydia that, you know, you you, you just, I'm dying to see, but it's, you only have so much real estate. Yeah, 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 excellent. Um, One of the kind of uh, criticisms, I guess, of the first season that, I thought was interesting was there was a big argument about the use of music, uh, especially like pop music. How did you, what did you think of that uh, discussion and like what kind of, what were you thinking in using some of the songs that you did? Uh, Well, a lot of that, uh, you know, certainly uh, was driven by me. I really liked that in uh, liked following what I felt like would be the soundtrack in June's head. Mm. Um, And Reed really, helped find a language for that in the first three episodes. And 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 luckily, Reed and I, you know, our, our musical taste don't, our musical knowledge doesn't overlap very much at all, not our taste. So, you know, she put in stuff that I never would have heard of, and I put in stuff that she never would have considered. And so uh, that worked well. Um, it was one of the bolder choice, choices yeah. on the show. and the, But the way that I always saw it is I wanted to be playing the music that either was or or expressed what was going on in June's head. It was another way to express her point of view. And also, it was a way to realize that the old world 
was still alive in her and in us. Mm-hmm. That 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 these were not handmaids; they were people being forced to be handmaids, women being forced to be handmaids. And so that was uh, where I took it. So it's kind of like, well, when this happens, this is what's going through her head. This kind of song or something. Um, and a lot of that has come from just getting to know Lizzie and kind of how she thinks about things and stuff like that. But you know, I I don't usually do this, but I mean, I did a lot of this just by, a lot of the music just by instinct. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like, this I think would be, it makes me laugh. It, it makes the scene have a little bit of a, a different kind of impact. So uh, let's try it. I mean, I've seen a million TV shows now and, and you know, when the music swells up, I, you know, know exactly what's going to happen and let's see if we don't know what's going to happen and what music's going to swell up. Um, and it, I think it's turned out to be fun and interesting and at least something to kind of look at and discuss. A lot of a lot of the songs, not all the songs, but a lot of the songs are kind of from around when the book was published. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But mostly for me, it's, it's really another element of Alfred's point of view. Yeah. We're uh, recording this in, in your offices, and it's festooned with stuff from season two. Spoilers, Elizabeth Moss is still on the show, um, <laughs> at least for a little bit. For a little, um, <laughs> at least for a little bit. And uh, I, I, as you head into another season of this show, one of the challenges I'm sure is, you know, keeping that balance between grim and hope, like just the, just like 1% hopeful, especially the deeper you get into a show the harder that can be to do. So tell me about how you think about that problem of we have to like keep people watching. We can't like have them be completely turned off by this horrible world. Well, I think there's two things. The first is, as I said before, entertainment. I mean, we want it to be entertaining and that encompasses uh, all the things that would put you off a show like this, which is that it's just too grim and too intense and, uh, you know, doesn't have any light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I'm I'm not really interested. I I don't like watching despair porn on TV, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't want to make it. I feel like this is a show um, that's as much about hope as it is about little victories, and the little victories kind of make the hope. And luckily, all the downsides of this world make it that just by surviving the afternoon, you get this huge sense of a victory for her. Any, even if she makes it through the day and she's almost broken, she we feel like she's gotten this huge victory. So in some ways, there's a ton of uplift that comes from her uh, using all these tools to stay sane and alive. You know, her sense of humor, her her she's so so observant and smart and so good at filing away things. But also, she's she's a great combination of being super patient. And then when something comes along, she's getting better and better, kind of just jumping and acting, which is not, I don't think, central to her personality. So my my feeling about it is that as she learns and as she gets better and, and as she is able to extract herself from more relationships, more situations that don't seem extractable, and the more smart decisions she makes, that's the hope. The hope is eventually she'll either use all those skills to survive until – Gilead falls or till she gets an opportunity to get out or till someone rescues her. Um, but if that doesn't happen soon, she is gathering more tools all the way along the way. Um, and also, I think the, the little victories, I think we learn to take much more pleasure from the little victories. So even though it's a show where you're 
thinking her odds of survival are slim. I think that you get moments, you, you don't ever get the hope, you don't, you don't ever get the feeling that her odds of survival are nil. Mm-hmm. And you also uh, get little victories along the way that f- even though they may not have long-term uh, resonance, they may not matter in the long-term, boy, they feel good in the short-term. Yeah. Oh. And so I think those I like to dwell in because I think that for her, for, for June in that world, a little victory, you know, uh, you know, a, a connection with someone, anything like that is so powerful that to me, to me, I kind of find it, I think hopeful is the wrong word for me, but I find it inspiring. Yeah. You know, that, you know, I go through the, my life and we all go through our lives and we bitch and moan and complain and there's a, you know, things we want to change in the government and this and that. And if, if Offred can do something, it certainly makes me feel like I should be able to do something. It's inspiring in that way that she's trying to affect change and I should stop complaining and start uh, just doing something. Yeah. Uh, I've somehow got, gotten through this without asking you anything about the real world and like what's going on in Washington and all this stuff. And like when the show debuted, there was so much written about how accidentally timely it was. Season one was, you know, obviously Donald Trump existed when you were writing season one, but like that was in a, that was a different world when you were writing it. Now you're writing season two in this world where you know how timely the show is. And how is that affecting your work, if at all? Uh, it, it's certainly affecting it because we learned that some things that we were hesitant to do in the first season, things that um, uh, were not necessarily pulled from today's headlines, um, but things that felt very of the now and what was happening of the now. We were a little worried about doing those things because we were worried that that it would feel like, oh, it was a reflection of the world today, not Gilead. It wasn't a fictional world. Mm-hmm. Um, those things were very successful for us. Um, I think they helped build Gilead. Um, and also they helped define Gilead as not this world, but, you know, you know, in some ways it, it is metaphorical to our world, but, but not, we're not telling a story about uh, the Trump administration. In fact, I mean, the, the theological um, patriarchy of Gilead is very dissimilar to, 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 to kind of the <laughs> philosophical point of view of most of the people. Um, um, I, you know, I always feel like, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, you're representing this person's fantasy. And I don't think Gilead is anybody's fantasy, including the people in Gilead. I don't mm-hmm. see very many people who are jumping up and down happy about the way it turned out. Um, but in season two, I think we've, uh, by, the, by the end of season one, we had em- embraced in an even bigger way the mantra of don't put anything on the show that doesn't happen in the real world. Because it's very easy to kind of create cruelties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then the show, especially a show where it's creating cruelties that are about sex and about relationships and about, especially about men's dominance over women, it turns into porn, mm-hmm. turns into a version of just torture porn very quickly. And so um, with that as our mantra last year and also as Margaret's um, modus operandi when she wrote the book, it's kind of easy to stay up and current because you're just looking around in the newspaper saying, oh, what's going on now? Mm-hmm. And so I think that, yes, it's difficult um, to uh, take from current events without judging them or categorizing them or kind of putting them into saying, this is this person's fault or this is this thing that we have to change or this is this group or what have you. I, I look more towards kind of the bigger things of like, isn't, 
the, the gulf between people, the, the fact that when do your people, when do people you disagree with go from being people you disagree with to people who are wrong to people who deserve to be dead. Yeah. Um, and, and those things that are happening kind of in the world and our society, uh, the specific, you know, Phil, I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't, understand the specific philosophical goals of Donald Trump um you know the the positions that he that he takes so so he's much more of a in my my case a, a kind of an, a strange personality yeah um that that's running the country uh and in Gilead we don't really there is no personality there's no thing at the person at the top who's kind of uh your Ceausescu or your person you know who's who's setting the tone um, they're relying on God to set the tone. Uh, so it's a very different society, but I think that, you know, being bound to uh, finding things in the real world and then once you find something in the real world, digging around to make sure that you're telling it in a way that's true, what is it really like for an immigrant to walk across into Canada? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's plenty of people out there who are very happy. You get on the phone and they tell you exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we are... Uh, trying to make a story about the things that are happening in the world, including things happening in the political arena, but we're not trying to make a political... I mean, there are politics in the show within Gilead, mm-hmm. but those are politics within Gilead. We're not, you know, we're not talking about the politics here today. There's, you know, there's there's plenty of, uh, lots of good lessons to take away from a story like this that Margaret created, but I don't know that uh, one of those lessons is that Margaret has a, crystal ball and will tell us what to do um, <laughs> if only that was true uh, so you know it's going to be interesting to see how people respond to season two already we've gotten to the point where we've you know we're, we're at this point we're talking about episode seven and eight yeah of season two uh, and things that we had in episodes one and two already hap you know like we came up with them and then they have, you know, already they've they've come to pass. And so I, I think we've just decided to kind of ignore that. I mean, we're not soothsayers. We're not trying to guess. We're just trying to tell this story well. And uh, especially if people take it as a call to action, that's wonderful. Um, certainly uh, a place like Gilead doesn't exist. I, I think it, people think it primarily, or it, I, I don't think a place like Gilead exists because, uh because of the people who want it to happen, but the people who let it happen. Yeah. And so the more we can kind of point out to people that, wow, you know, if you close your eyes, something really shitty could happen. Don't close your eyes. Um, that doesn't mean go out and, you know, uh, protest the government. That may mean go out and carry a sign in support of the government, but, mm-hmm. but, but do something, get involved, or things end up being the way you don't want them to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we we uh, ask some of the same questions of our guests at the end of every show. Uh, I, before we do that, I want to point out that your microphone in your office is held up by two copies of the Bible. Mine is held up by a puzzle and uh, the book Click Clack Moo. So <laughs> this is a very eclectic reading list in this office. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but first, uh, the first question is, um, what's the last like TV show you watched, movie you watched, uh, album you listened to or book you read, last pop culture thing you took in and what did you think of it? The last movie I watched was The Buddy Holly Story, which I watched last night with my kids. Mm-hmm. And really what I, I, I took away from it is is um, the fact that, that Gary Busey had an amazing performance in that movie. He was nominated for an Oscar, um, and he's so young. Um, the uh, 
portrait of someone who's who could be larger than life and making them very accessible. That was mm-hmm. what I took away from that. Uh, just the idea that you really felt like you knew this person and knew day to day what it was like to write songs and kind of try to figure out. And at one point he goes, there's this song in my head and I can't, nothing I hear is like it. And and I think for me as as doing this show, that was very much my experience at the beginning was there's a show in my head and I just don't see it and how frustrating that is to try to get it out. So so that's the last piece of pop culture that mm-hmm. I saw. Who's the writer you've learned the most from that you've never met? Well, I would say Margaret Atwood, but now I've met her. <laughs> um, uh, I would say the person I've learned the most from is probably um, either Stephen King, mm-hmm. who uh, I just, the, the way that he structures scenes and structures scenes dramatically is is amazing on the page. And I would love to, he's been following the show um, and I, you know, am absolutely tickled and blown away every time he mentions something about it. He mentioned how I terrified, it, you know, an episode was terrifying. And if you can terrify Stephen King, <laughs> that's a pretty good one. Um, and the other person I think, I think strangely is Jane Austen. Okay. The idea of being able to kind of put together palm sweating tension when it's just a bunch of people sitting around talking about, mm-hmm. You know, do, do I like this person? Do I want to spend the the way that she could kind of draw human drama, not into melodrama, but into the fact that the, our our happiness and our sadness actually comes from the decisions that we make, and that some people make them very willy nilly, and some people make them relatively uh, uh, thoughtfully, um, and that those different decision-making processes don't always turn out. You know, it's not that the thoughtful person gets happy and the unthoughtful person is sad. Um, And the other thing that I really love about Jane Austen is that it always has this great pre-Freudian feeling of it doesn't matter what happened to you when you were a kid. It doesn't matter what happened to you in your life. If you were born silly, you're silly. You're silly Mm -hmm. from the minute you wake up to the, you know, the minute you're born to your entire life and you die silly. Um, And I just love that idea because, you know, we're so bound in movies to say, well, I need to see the scene when they were a child and this happened or when they, when they were, you know, when their partner got killed, I need to see the reason why they are that way. Um, And it ties back to a, something that Margaret Atwood said in her book, which was, you know, it's so easy to invent a humanity for anyone. You can find humanity, find a, a story of humanity in anybody. Um, and that that's not always true. And there's not always a reason. Uh, and we're so kind of tied into a post-Freudian, like, oh, everybody, they are this way because this thing happened. And to see someone who just doesn't write that way at all, mm-hmm. and her characters aren't that way at all, is uh, is, is is and someone who is very good at writing characters that I, that she um, just taught me a ton about about uh, how to dig into people who seem like they would not be as con- conflicted and fascinating as they are, and um, to to dig into people that you just can't forget, even though they're just like some guy walking down the street in that town. I mean, she really was good at kind of poking around in people's brains before poking around in people's brains was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, what's your favorite TV show that you had nothing to do with? Oh, um, uh, the, I would say my favorite current TV show that I, that I didn't have anything to do with was probably stranger things. I okay. loved it very much harkened back to my childhood and, and, the the people involved did a spectacular job from casting to to story to production design. I I, I really really um, loved loved that. Um, uh, uh, I would say kind of I grew up on Thirty Something and, mm. and Hill Street Blues and 
and, you know, to a lesser extent, West Wing and ER, which I didn't end up work, working on. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, just, I had nine seasons of being a fan before I got to work on it. And uh, th- those kind of shows I really just loved. I loved the um, kind of an environment of people who are trying to do good under difficult difficult circumstances. Uh, and there was a nobility to it. And, and um, I think that uh, that is more the way that human beings work than we give them credit for, that most people are just trying to, you know, do something good and get through the day. I don't think, you know, you know, I think that uh, even if people go about it in very different ways, I'm, I'm kind of a definitely a, a smoochy op- optimist when it comes to that stuff. So those, those, uh, those shows and also just the Steve Bochco um, model of writing all these different storylines, the, you know, the, the, those shows taught me how to write and how to think like a, a grown up. So yeah. uh those are, you know, really my favorites. And and of course Lost in Space. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Bruce Miller, for joining us. And I look forward to seeing season two. Well, thank you very much for for being interested and I'll try to make it good. Great, great. Uh the Handmaid's Tale is on Hulu. You can watch it right now. I think you're interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerth. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreg. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. This week's episode was recorded at the Handmaid's Tale offices in Hollywood, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Be that Apple Podcasts, be that Stitcher, be that some random app I've never heard of. As long as you're listening to it there, please give us that. Give us that rating. Give us that review. Give us uh, some sort of subscription. It helps us climb the charts. It helps us bring in great guests. It helps us in so many ways. Uh, We will be back next week with another interview with someone from the world of arts and entertainment, someone who I think is interesting. And spoiler alert, I'm just going to say this about next week's episode, but a 10-year-old me sort of can't believe it happened. Until then, remember, don't let the bastards grind you down. Cut this out, Peter. (laughs) Please leave it in, Peter.